The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and this week I'll be talking with Catherine Rottenberg about the rise of neoliberal feminism. You can listen to the pod on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter at Poll Theory Other. My guest this week is Catherine Rottenberg. Catherine is a Mary Sklodowsky Curie Fellow in the Department of Sociology at Goldsmiths and a senior lecturer at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. Her book, The Rise of Neoliberal Feminism, will be published later this year by Oxford University Press. I began by asking Catherine how she would define neoliberalism. Neoliberalism has has totally become one of these buzzwords used so much and so often that it risks losing any kind of specificity. Um, But I do use a very specific definition of neoliberalism, and I draw... Uh, in order to do that, I draw on political theorists like um, Michelle Fair and, and Wendy Brown. And so basically, I don't understand uh, neoliberalism as uh, merely as an economic system or a set of economic policies that uh, facilitate intensified privatization and deregulation. I understand neo- neoliberalism as what uh, Wendy Brown calls uh dominant political rationality or a normative form of reason that moves to and from the management of the state to the inner workings of the subject. So neoliberal rationality extends a specific formulation of economic values, economic practices, and economic metrics to every dimension of human life. And what the result of that is that it helps, uh, neoliberalism helps transform human subjects into entrepreneurial um, and capital-enhancing agents. Um, And I'll make this more concrete with a few examples in a second, but just another way of thinking about it uh, is that neoliberalism or neoliberal rationality is is a dominant regime of truth that recasts everything and every element of of society on a contemporary business model. So if we're thinking about the state what concerns the state is first and foremost economic growth and not the well-being of its citizens or thinking about academia, uh, which is where I work. Um, today, university presidents are more likely to conceive of themselves as CEOs of business enterprises rather than leaders of institutions whose goal is to seek veritas, truth. So um, as many of us in the academy experience on a daily basis, everything is about is, is reduced or is about benchmarks and cost benefit metrics. And what that means is that education is no longer a good in and of itself. And uh, students then perceive themselves as customers and see education as an investment in their future or as a commodity rather than, again, a, 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 an end in and of itself. And incidentally, I was just reading um, an article in The Telegraph where one student puts it 
quite succinctly. Um, and he says something like, you know, we pay a large amount for our tuition fees and we expect the university in return to provide us with the appropriate education. So this turn towards neoliberalism, which, you know, is usually situated in the late 70s and then the early 80s, varying by country somewhat. What is that turn to neoliberalism a turn away from? In order to sort of answer that question, I want to maybe I'll give some uh, I'll give some context about the genesis of my project on uh, neoliberal feminism and how it began and sort of uh, what I was tracking that that precisely the move from what I what I perceive to be liberal feminism with a focus on equality and rights and and liberation, uh, liberal feminism to neoliberal feminism. And I think that, uh, well, I was in the U.S. on sabbatical in 2012, and that was precisely the year that Anne-Marie Slaughter's Why Women Still Can't Have It All was published in the Atlantic magazine. And that article created such a stir and generated such heated debate and actually catapulted Slaughter, who was a former Princeton dean and um, also the former advisor to Hillary Clinton when she was secretary of state. Um, it catapulted her into national into the national spotlight. And it was that article, that article became the most widely read essay in the entire history of the Atlantic. But that was also the year in which uh, the COO of Facebook, Sheryl Sandberg, um, came out with her feminist manifesto, Lean In. And so what I was, I was there in the U.S. at this time, and what was so interesting and surprising um, was that all of a sudden, or so it seemed, powerful, high-profile women were publicly identifying as feminist. And that was something that we just hadn't seen in the past, at least not as far as I could remember. And I began to read these two manifestos very, very carefully. I'm actually trained as a literary critic. So I was reading Slaughter and later Sandberg, and I was really struck by a number of things. Um, and this relates back to the move from liberalism or liberal feminism to neoliberal feminism. And I was struck perhaps most of all by the all but total disappearance of key terms that had traditionally been inseparable from public feminist discussions, public uh, feminist debates, uh, equality, rights, liberation, social justice. And what I was noticing was that in their stead, you had the emergence or, uh, or re repetition of terms like happiness, balance, and of course, lean in. And so that was both disturbing, but also fascinating to me. So I began to think about this new vocabulary. And um, I began to suspect that Slaughter's article was registering something and it was registering a certain reorientation of liberal feminism from equality and rights towards balance and positive effect. Um, and what her piece does is it tries to explain why professional women are still finding it difficult to balance career demands with their wish for an active home life. And what she argues in that, in, in that piece is that social norm, norms and um, the inflexibility of uh, U.S. workplace culture continue to privilege career advancement over family. So what Slaughter does is she urges us and uh, urges an American public, but particularly women, to reaffirm their commitment to family. And, and she argues that if we do this and if we push U.S. workplaces to do this, women will be better poised to carve out uh, a happy work-family balance. And that's what struck me. 
what was being discussed was not the notion of the second shift, which is was famously described by Arlie Hochschild. Um, second shift connotes difficulty, but balance doesn't. And balance was not just being presented as a social good. It seemed to have become a kind of new feminist ideal. Um, and what, what I saw in Slaughter's piece, when I began to write, read more, I began to understand or argue was symptomatic of a wider discourse that had emerged. I began to notice that balance, or the, which, which basically means the ability to pursue a meaningful career at the same time as enjoying a, a fulfilling home life, which basically translated into raising children, was beginning to be bandied about all over the mainstream press. Um, and I argued that Slaughter's piece was registered and repre re reproduced very clearly this new model of emancipated womanhood. And then Sandberg, and what Sandberg's really interesting in this respect as well, um, and, and, and her, this is the, this is again, the year that Sandberg's best-selling feminist manifesto, Lean In uh, Women Work and the Will to Lead was published in that book she encourages women to lean into their professional lives. And even though the mainstream media has often pitted Sandberg and Slaughter as if they're in conflict or opposed to one another, um, in fact, her ideal is precisely the same as Slaughter's, uh, happy work-family balance. And what Sandberg does is she comes at the, pro the problem from the other side. She urges women to reaffirm their commitment to work, not family. Um, but she also insists that this uh, will ultimately provide women with more choice about how to carve out um, a felicitous work-family balance. So both women ultimately agree on the basics, and the difference then becomes just a matter of emphasis. And the, the goal, so the feminist goal, is to allow women to balance happily work and family. Um, so actually, after reading Sandberg, I began to think that this might not be merely a transformation of liberal feminism, but something qualitatively different. And um, this qualitatively different feminist discourse is what I've come to call neoliberal feminism. Um, and basically, in a nutshell, the way that I understand or the way that I use this term neoliberal feminism is uh, as a feminism that has been unmoored from key terms and from social ideal, ideals uh, what associated uh, with liberalism such as equality, justice, and liber liberation. And these terms have really informed women's movements and feminism since their inception. And what you have in neoliberal feminism is something different. And that is a feminism that disavows the structure shaping our lives, uh, the socioeconomic and cultural structures. And it also helps produce a, sub a feminist subject who accepts full responsibility for her own well-being and self-care, and her and that's well-being and self-care is predicated on uh, this crafting of a happy work-family balance, which is itself based on a cost-benefit calculus. So that is the definition in, uh, and that was sort of the the transformation that I was tracking, um, and and that Odyssey began in that very very critical year in 2012 2013. In your work, you talk about how these authors sort of call upon women to internalize the revolution, to sort of recognize that the, the feminist victories, in a sense, have already been won. And it's now up to women to sort of change their mentality in order to achieve the gains that, in, that in, a, in a sense, have already been won. It's just for women to, to go out and get them. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? 
I think that what, 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 you're, what you're pointing at is really interesting because one of the things that I was interested in my, in my work, one of the questions that I have or I had going into this project, especially after, in the wake of the debates that both Slaughter and Sandberg's manifestos generated was, okay, um, you know, 2012, 2013, this is the time, you know, Obama is still in, in the White House, and it seems that uh, we're in a period of what Nancy Fraser has called progressive neoliberalism. So many of um, uh, prog- these progressive uh, stands and positions like uh, LGBTQ rights have, have seemingly been uh, enfolded into, into, commons, into institutional and mainstream common sense. And, um, you know, this is the era that cultural theorists and feminist scholars such as uh, Angela McRoby and Roz Gill have termed uh, post the post-feminist era where there was a certain sensibility, uh, particularly within um, and disseminated within the uh, mainstream and popular press that uh, feminism was passe that uh, uh, gender equality had more or less been gained, and therefore there was no longer any reason for uh, feminism for feminism in the sense of a mass mobile, mass movement with gender inequality at its uh, center. Um, and this is also a time in which uh, you have um, you know the first black president and the whole discourse around post racial society, and so. And then you had Slaughter and uh, Sandberg come out with their manifestos and feminism all of a sudden became an issue again in the mainstream and popular press. And um, so one of the questions that I went into this project with was, okay, if post-feminism was doing such a good job at sort of um, disavowing the need for feminism, then why resuscitate or revive uh, a feminist discourse at all when it's doing much of the same thing that post-feminism was doing. So I think that was really what um, interested me. And I think in terms of the question of, I think the question that you're asking is basically, is it is it only about internalizing the revolution? If that's the case, then why do you need, you know, what is the need for this kind of feminism? I, I think that I have my my research has come about in such a way that I have tried to struggled with this question um, and tried to come up with a, an answer, an account, a partial account for why there was a need to resuscitate resuscitate a feminism neoliberal and what I come to call neoliberal f- feminism that basically um, disavows it, it avows gender inequality but disavows any kind of socioeconomic structures informing our life. And so what this feminism actually does, I think, is um, it comes to basically help neoliberalism solve one of its intractable or internal tensions, and that has to do with reproduction. And so I think that the way that we need to understand sort of the emergence of, of this neoliberal feminism is precisely in a, in, a, in a thinking about the period in which Neoliberal, neoliberalism is colonizing more and more of our of our lives, every aspect of our lives, converting uh, converting every aspect into um, you know specks of capital. You have the question of re- reproduction. So 
what does neoliberal feminism do? Okay, this was the this is what I began seeing in 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 slaughter, and what came to be even more pronounced in in Sandberg. And as soon as balance becomes a feminist ideal, well, what does neoliberal feminism? What kind of cultural work does neoliberal feminism carry out? I think that neoliberal feminism buttresses, buttresses in certain ways conventional ideas about gender in certain ways, but not in others. Neoliberal feminism reifies individual women's responsibility for care work, but it also presents an idea where women are called upon to cultivate a successful career for themselves. In that sense, it challenges traditional ideas of gender. On the third hand, it also entrenches the gendered infrastructure of care work. And it does this in more ways than simply making individual women responsible for this work. Since often professional women outsource care work, and then who's doing this care work? Um, who's doing the, the care work in order to allow so-called aspirational women to cultivate balance in their lives? Of course, that's mostly women of color, poor and immigrant women. So thinking about what precisely neoliberal feminism does in terms of retraditionalization of gender norms is really important by maintaining, you know, let's think again about the happy work family balance, right? By maintaining reproduction as part of so-called aspirational women's normative trajectory, and by positing balance as, as its ultimate ideal, um, neoliberal feminism helps to ensure that all responsibility for reproduction falls squarely on the shoulder of individual women. And yet these women are also simultaneously being encouraged to cultivate a successful career and to postpone having children until they are in, in their late 30, 20s and 30s. And this is where all those egg freezing debates come in. Um, and in fact, having children later has become the norm among middle and upper cl middle class women. Um, and what this indicates, or at least this is what I'm arguing in my project, is that young women are increasingly encouraged to perceive of themselves as human capital. And this is where the colonization of neoliberalism uh, of more and more aspects of our lives is really crucial. Um, and in a sense, they're being, they're being encouraged to, to perceive themselves as generic and not gendered human capital. Um, as sort of their selves as a resource that needs to be invest, invested in, um, particularly in, in terms of career success. So how can we explain this double movement or this seemingly contradictory call, the encouragement to relate to themselves as human capital, generic human capital on the one hand, but also the encouragement to desire motherhood, but only in their 30s, again, the happy work-family balance. So what I would claim is that Neoliberalism actually may need feminism uh, to resolve at least temporarily some of its one of its internal tensions in relation to gender. And again, if we go back to the definition that I gave of neoliberalism as an economic order, neoliberalism relies on reproduction and care work in order to reproduce and maintain human capital. Um, but on the other hand, as a political rationality and um, in contrast to liberalism, and Wendy Brown has written extensively on this in her book, Undoing the Demos, neoliberalism has no vocabulary or lexicon uh, that can recognize, let alone value reproduction and care work. So everything is reduced uh, to a cost-benefit metrics, even our political imagination. And so this lack of vocabulary or this lack of a lexicon not only has to do with the way in which neoliberal rationality uh, increasingly recasts human beings or human subje subjects as generic human capital or homo economicus, right, where gender is disavowed. And this is where you see sort of a push 
to erase traditional notions of sexual difference. But this lack of vocabulary is also because neoliberalism, neoliberalism erodes the division of the public-private spheres um, informing liberal thought and the traditional sexual division of labor. labor. And, it, and again, it does this through the conversion of everything into specs of capital. So if we measure every, and evaluate everything through the market, through market metrics, and the only thing left is specs of capital, and no, there's no longer any vocabulary left to speak about the gendered infrastructure of work, then, in fact, neoliberal feminism may operate as a kind of pushback to the total conversion of uh, so-called aspirational, educated, and upwardly mobile women into generic human capital. So my claim um, is that neoliberalism may need or needs to maintain a discourse of reproduction. And, um, and this is where it goes back to the question about how the internalizing, it's not only that it's internalizing, it's, it's responsible, responsibleizing, making individual women responsible for their self-care. And, and, and this then helps absolve the state of, or any other institution of any responsibility. And it, and it maintains this discourse of reproduction in order to solve the quandary of reproduction. And neoliberal feminism does just that. You know, gender, hu generic human capital, it seems, can't really do reproduction or care work. Um, and so the other thing that I was thinking about as I was reading these texts that um, really uh, help sort of circulate this new feminist idea of the emancipated, the, the, the new, new ideal of the emancipated woman is think about, okay, who gets left out of this uh, balanced equation? And I think it's really important to think about what happens as reproductive technology develops. You know, this population of women, um, again, so-called aspirational women, will likely be able to outsource reproduction and care work more and more. And what that will do is it will ensure the re-entrenchment re of the so-called aspirational subject as generic human capital on the one hand. And in that sense, it erases traditional notions of sexual difference. And it also makes wages for housework and care work even more of a reality. And at the same time, it produces a whole other class of women who are not conceived as fully responsibleized and are therefore sort of disposable. Um, so one of the things that I think that, um, and that I was tracking from a slaughter to, you know, Ivanka Trump, I mean, that's where my, my project goes up to Ivanka Trump, um, is that neoliberal feminism in, sort of renders invisible the gendered infrastructure of care and um, through this discourse of balance. And yet it ensures that women still want children through this discourse of a happy work-family balance. So when I was reading your work, I think one thing that sort of occurred to me initially was that I was I was sort of reading and thinking, well, you know, in, in some ways, neoliberal feminism seems to be an ideology that would actually be more appropriate to the pre-financial crash era, in the sense that that's a period where the prospects for climbing the ladder and, and attaining the prizes that seem to be on offer within this society seem more realistic than after the crash. But I suppose in terms of how neoliberalism legitimates itself, it's, it's very much an appropriate ideology for our time because, you know, there's, there's not so much for, for capitalism to sustain itself with a, apart from by showing that we uh, live in, in self-critical societies, that we're sort of aware of the problems of, of our societies and, and, and struggling and, and moving forward with, with those problems. And, and I suppose you can see parallels with other struggles as well, uh, you know, race in particular, and that this is a sort 
sort of a way to, to differentiate the West from, from less open societies. And um, in your work, you, you talk about the way neoliberal feminism has served to bolster Western imperialism. I, I wonder if you could say something more about that. Again, um, my thinking about this has really changed over uh, the course of the past uh, six years, because the, when I began this project is important. Um, and again, when I began this project, we were in a, it felt like a very, very different period. So yes, it's uh, post uh, 2008, it's post the financial collapse, but it is now a moment in which progressive neoliberalism seems to be to have become part of the mainstream and institutional consensus. Um, and so one of the things that I began asking um, uh, as I was trying to outline, describe and define this new form of feminism um, was again, why reinvigorate feminism? And at first, my my thinking was precisely around questions of bringing the critical eye back on the West and what that might mean in terms of um, uh, sort of a, a new, a renewed uh, uh, discourse of gendered inequalities. And so, what I wondered at the time was whether uh, the public acknowledgement of continued gendered inequalities in the U.S. was serving to bolster a waning sense of um, uh, liberal democracy's progress or perfectibility, or maybe even feasibility. And so this seemed at the time, I mean, this was the Obama era um, and progressive neoliberalism was the modus operandi. Um, and, I, and I do think that this can still be considered one of the multiple sources for the emergence of this form of feminism. But um, you know, after the crash, people thought that maybe that was that would be the end of neoliberalism. But in fact, neoliberalism became even more entrenched. And I think that going thinking again back to 2012, um, this is precisely at a time when the political principles of liberal democracy were being eroded by the norms and practices of the market even more. You know, um, and the production of neoliberal feminism seemed to me to to, to perhaps help sustain. Uh, the weakening belief uh, that the U.S. still aspires to fulfill liberal democracy promise, a liberal democracy promise of true equality, and maybe in a sense it is also a reaction to uh, 2008, 2007, and eight. I also think that it's important to remember that you know, a lot, uh, as feminist scholars such as Joan Scott and Sarah Ferris have argued that gender equality has become the so-called benchmark of civilization and progress. So whereas the so-called plight of women, women in Muslim countries has served, um, had served before Obama to, to, to deflect attention away from continued gender inequality in the U.S., um, a specific kind of internal gaze may have become increasingly necessary in, to do, in order to do some of the same cultural work. So what, what I argued was that the publication of these self-proclaimed feminist tracts created uh, the powerful created a, a powerful impression that the US was willing and able to sustain to, to sustain self-critique um, but also and I think really importantly that it was still committed and governed by liberal rather than neoliberal or market principles and then this in turn helped justify neo-colonial aggression and American exceptionalism exceptionalism um, particularly since it helps reinforce the notion that the US um, is still was still the pinnacle of liberal democracy. So it wasn't just criticizing Muslim majority countries 
um, and continuing to occupy some of them, but it was also constantly trying to improve itself. The, my, my argument um, as I began thinking about why uh, neoliberal feminism uh, emerged was that it, 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 it sort of helped justify neocolonial aggression, right? Uh, uh, because it reinforces this idea that the U.S. Uh, is willing to constantly self-critique and improve itself and it's still this pinnacle of liberal democracy. And it wasn't just about criticizing Muslim majority countries in the way that they treat women. Um, and of course, they're still continuing to occupy some of these. But it was about um, the possibility of always uh, of, of progress. Um, and so but I also even began yeah, I, I began sort of rethinking the questions about why neoliberal feminism uh, may have emerged and what kind of culture work it, it carries out. And, and, and so my thinking about this really also shifted even before Trump's election. Um, and that, um, and that uh, the, there are multiple reasons or sources for the emergence of neoliberal feminism. Um, and one of the things that I've come to argue, as I was talking about before, and particularly after not just reading the uh, manifestos of Slaughter and Sandberg, but reading um, and watching a wide array of, of things in the mainstream and popular media from New York Times articles, Washington Post articles, uh, um, Huffington Post, but also The Good Wife and uh, Mommy Blogs, is, again, that the production of neoliberal feminism has helped neolib neoliberal rationality resolve or cover up um, its own intractable internal tension, which is reproduction. And so one of the things that I also began to think about and, and, and posit as made is that neoliberalism may need feminism in ways that it doesn't need a discourse of anti-racism or post-racialism or even queer acceptance, since it is reproduction that appears to pose a conundrum for neoliberal rationality in ways that race doesn't um, or the LGBTQ uh, community doesn't. And I think in any case, what seems to be abundantly clear is that the turn inward, right? So particularly now in the Trump era, both to the national borders uh, of the U.S., but also into these interiorized affective spaces helps to further entrench neoliberalism by making, by responsibilizing women um, and by producing these individuated feminist subjects who transform liberation into self-care and self-investment and as we know, part of the work that neoliberalism does is to uh, devolve responsibility for the weak, uh, to the weakest segments of society. And neoliberal feminism helps to absolve the state of uh, the state or any other institution for any responsibility when it comes to reproduction and care work. And really, you only have to think um, about Ivanka Trump's new book, Women Who Work, to see that neoliberal feminism is very much alive even within the Trump administration. Yeah, one one thing I was interested in was um, so you talk about how neoliberal feminism sort of both serves to kind of reinforce traditional gender roles and to undermine them to some extent. But in terms of of the former, so I'm often struck reading sort of liberal feminists in places like The Guardian, who seem to be sort of paradigmatic cases of, of people who, who sort of hold a, a neoliberal feminist perspective. It, you know, it's all about work-life balance. It's all about, I mean, in some respects, it's about relatively sort of heteronormative roles and so on. 
And it doesn't seem coincidental to me that these commentators also commonly seem to find the, the rise of the trans movement quite troubling. What do you think, um, if you think it is true, why do you think trans women and men are so difficult for this, uh, this form of uh, feminism? That's a, it's an interesting question, and I'm, I'm not sure, though, that, um, that neoliberal feminism ha- feminists find it more difficult than other feminists um, have had. Let's, uh, I actually haven't really thought uh, about this in, in those terms, but what I will say is that I'm actually not sure that neoliberal feminism feminists have had a harder time with trans women or trans than other feminists have had with trans mm. uh, issues more uh, generally. Here, maybe uh, uh, an example from popular culture might help us think about this. Um, Billions, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's this popular TV series where you, um, and uh, part of prime time, and it's about a hedge firm, the, the founder, a billionaire, and his adversaries. But the 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 series has, I think, one of the first, if not the first, gender non-binary binary character. And uh, Taylor, the character, has a lead role. Um, and although the character isn't particularly likable, none of the characters in the show are. So the, the show is, one could argue, like it's neoliberalism and neoliberal feminism on steroids. And there you have a character that brings a lot of trans issues into play. But precisely because everything is reduced to the market, well, not quite the market, because there's also all kinds of jealousy and raw desire for power and money. But in a sense, everything is about a market metrics. In the show, Taylor, the character's gender nonconformity becomes almost a non-issue. And I think that's really, really interesting. And I think it brings us back to progressive neoliberalism and what it does. And I think if I were to give sort of off the cuff um, uh, an answer to, to the question is I think, think that some of the resistance to trans, trans people, trans studies uh, and, and, and theory, it's also generational. Um, and uh, I was on a panel the other day and I heard lots of young feminists and feminists from all stripes who do not who, who don't necessarily identify as trans or gender nonconforming. And they were discussing trans issues. And it was really, really amazing because for them, they them as singular pronouns has become part of their common sense. Um, so um, I so I think that would be the way that I would answer that question. And I would also reiterate that I think that neoliberal feminism is doing some complicated work with respect to traditional gender roles. Um, so you have a retrenchment of the traditional gender division of labor, but you also have a strata of women, a tiny one, of course, but these are also the ones who are in positions of power who are not necessarily doing the gendered labor themselves. So you also have in really strange and uh, bizarre ways um, an undermining of traditional notions of sexual difference. So that leads again to progressive, you know, this idea of progressive neoliberalism. Yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, clearly um, within radical feminism, there's been you know, a great deal of resistance yeah. to uh, to the trans movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in your work, this conception of neoliberal feminism, it's it's, it's you know, as, as we've discussed, it's all about sort of interiority and self-improvement and so on. You know, there's a couple of recent um, political movements that, that seem to suggest possibly a turn away from this. I'm thinking particularly of the Me Too movement. 
and in another sphere, Black Lives Matter as well. Um, do you think this suggests that neoliberal feminism is in something of a, of a crisis and, and is in danger of being delegitimized or superseded because these movements clearly are much more outwardly focused than uh, the neoliberal feminism? Um danger of being superseded i'm not sure i would put it that way that maybe hopefully superseded but um it's a it's a it's a really interesting question because um uh let, let me begin with me too um and i don't and i think that me too is is a complicated uh is, is a complicated issue and one that is has raised a lot of debates and uh, within feminist circles, activists or, or academic, I've heard a lot, over the past few months, I've heard a lot of critiques of Me Too. And, I, uh, you know, there are two particular critiques that I'll, I'll bring to the fore here. Um, uh, and they're critiques that I'm sympathetic with. One uh, is that uh, it's only when powerful, uh, wealthy and mostly white women come forward that influential men have been forced to resign from high-profile positions. So they raise the question of about whose voice gets heard. But of course, the another critique is precisely that me too is about me, right? The individual's uh, resilience and survival. Um, so it's individualistic and, and, and therefore can't mobilize people politically. So there is a critique that, it, that or a claim that it it is sort of part of a neoliberal feminist discussion and there's a lot of anxiety about whether Me Too ultimately individualizes and atomizes each person who who uses the hashtag um, and ignores the structures that enable and and, and reproduce sex, sexism and male entitlement. I should say though that I, although I'm ambivalent, I think that the Me Too movement has managed to expose um, entrenched sexism in the West and some of its most blatant forms, certainly, rape and sexual assault. But I also think, and I think this is key, is that it has managed to lay bare, at least in some degree, how male entitlement saturates our culture. So I, I do think that it goes uh, beyond the me of Me Too um, in important ways, even if it doesn't um, uncomplicatedly reject neoliberal feminism. And I also think um, that much of where the movement goes on this applies to Black Lives Matter as, as well, whether um, it's enfolded into progressive neoliberalism or, and now going back to Me Too, whether it's enfolded into neoliberal feminism has a lot to do with how we continue to mobilize around it. Um, and um, I also think that we're living in a really interesting period in, in, in relation to gender politics. And uh, this landscape has changed dramatically since I first began my research. Um, and so maybe I'll just say a few words of how I understand the current feminist landscape, um, because I think this is this will answer in part the, the question of, of whether neoliberal feminism is being superseded. I think that particularly in the UK and the US, the context that I know best, uh, the, the feminist landscape is, consists at the moment of a number of interesting trends and these trends are, are overlap and they inform each other, but they also push back one against the other. Um, so at first in the, in, the, in the past half decade or so, we, we've witnessed the way in which feminist themes have uh, converged with neoliberalism, but they've also been mobilized by far right national parties in Europe. We also have an unprecedented number of neoliberal and conservative women proudly declaring themselves feminists from Sheryl Sandberg through Theresa May to Ivanka Trump. 
And then we, we have second, we have this, uh, and, and related to the first phenomenon, Feminism has become popular in ways that no one would have predicted just a few years ago. Suddenly, everyone wants to be, everyone is a feminist, from pop stars like Beyonce and Miley Cyrus to movie stars like Emma Watson to perhaps most recently Meghan Markle, our soon, our soon-to-be feminist princess. So <laughs> I think that these, I think that these phenomena are, are, are intimately related to the rise and entrenchment of neoliberal feminism. And why is that? Because when feminism encourages individual women to focus on themselves and their own aspirations um, and work life, uh, happy work, uh, family balance, it can then more easily be popularized and circulated and, and sold in the, in the marketplace. But alongside this, and this is the final and more optimistic uh, trend, is at the same time that you have an explosion of popular feminism, and at the same time that you have the conversion of feminism with, with neoconservative and neoliberal agendas, we also have also seen grassroots movements and large-scale feminist protests uh, reemerging as a potentially potent political force. And this, of course, is true particularly in the wake of Trump's election and the reappearance of uh, shameless sexism in the public sphere. But we are, we have witnessed uh, uh, in the past year and a half, a new wave of mass feminist militancy. And the vast majority of this feminism is not neoliberal feminism. So I, I do want to say that the ground, I mean, this wasn't coming out of nowhere. There was, the groundwork uh, for this groundswell was already in place in many ways. Um, and let's not forget that Me Too initially emerged as a grassroots movement, uh, which was spearheaded by the African-American activist Rana Burke. Or that there was a certain readiness or openness to Me Too, since it came on the heels of other mobilizations. Uh, the Women's March is one example, but also Slut Walk. Um, so to go back to the question of whether neoliberal feminism is in the process of being superseded, I don't yet think it's been superseded. Um, the, uh, Ivanka Trump's Women Who Work was a best-selling book, even though it was criticized in the mainstream media. But there is certainly a new momentum that challenges neoliberal feminism but again, the future direction in which these movements move remains to be seen. And again, it's at least in part up to us. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. You can follow on Facebook and Twitter at Poll Theory Other. Uh, my slightly one-sided ratings war with Nick Clegg's anger management is ongoing. So if you like the podcast, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.